Let's see. I'm going to start with these. I have these, these squirty things. Not because I'm going to squirt you guys, but because I want to. These are, these are fully loaded. They've got some good range. And I'm going to, Rick, you look excited. I'm not going to hit you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you this this morning. I want you to hold this throughout the lesson. You can even point it at me. But I want you to not squirt me with it. Although you can, I don't want you to. Don't squirt Matt or Joyce either. Okay, just hold it, but don't do anything with it. Uh, Justin, you can be the squirt gun holder for this side. But again, and you can point it at me, you can have it, and be ready to go with it, but do not squirt me. Okay, resist the temptation. And I'll explain what this means a little bit later on. I know. I, it's, uh, I'm trusting you guys. I'm dry now, and I'd like to keep it that way, at least until I get to Manteca. <laughs> you guys, we are in a sermon series called It's Good, because we're reminding ourselves that the gospel is good. You might already know that, but there are people in our world that says, you know what? Religion's bad for society. People who are dedicated to following Jesus are, that's a bad thing. And they have critical questions for people of faith and Christianity specifically, we are taking some time this summer to learn how to respond lovingly and gently, but faithfully with some answers to questions that people will pose for, uh, against, we can say, Christianity. So in this series, we're, it's kind of two parts. We're going to listen to the words from Paul to the Thessalonian church, words of encouragement for a group of Christians who also were suspect in society. They were a small minority. They were not always well received. And people had questions about how strange this new religion was. And aren't we better off without it? So Paul sends them these words of encouragement. We're going to hear those words as we do uh, every Sunday in this series. The second thing we're going to do is respond to a particular criticism of Christianity. And this, the one that we're going to listen to today, has to do with questions about the Bible. Should we believe the Bible? Should we take it literally? Is it actually a trustworthy historical source of information? We're going to equip ourselves with some information about how to respond to some of those criticisms. But before we do that, uh, I want to show you just a clip from a Bible Project video that outlines the book of 1 Thessalonians. And what you're going to see in this three-minute video that I believe Joseph is going to have to cue for us is uh, you're going to see the Writers of this video are going to outline what chapter 4 is about. There's kind of like three chunks, and it gives us this quick... So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing beauty and the power of sex within even of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs Christians should be known in the people who work really not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. 
After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses an image that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice. Okay, that was a quick lesson about what 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is about, and I want you to just hear the words. We're going to read it as a devotional reading, what Paul has to say to this church. He's already encouraged them and said, we were worried about your faith being shaken, but now we got this report that your faith is strong, and that's great news for us, and that means that you guys are on the right path. So he continues to encourage them. And the three things I want you to notice, one is that he talks about a sexual ethic. And I, we're going to talk about this more in one of our lessons later on this summer, what specifically that is and where it comes from and how we can know what God wants. But for today, I just want you to notice that there is a sexual ethic. Uh, and, and there's a general ethic, too. Most of what Paul says here, there's, there's only a few verses where Paul does not reference, this is from Christ. Or we're telling you this, not because we want to control you or not because we're making this up. This comes from God. So pay attention to how many times he says, the thing we're telling you, the authority for it, comes from God. The second thing is he talks about living good lives in the community. And he says, you guys are already doing this. You already got an A, so you really don't need to change anything, but you're not burdening the people around you. You're living respectable lives, and so you're putting in a good word for the gospel. And then the third thing, he responds to a question they ask about the dead. There's Christians who have died, and he's like, wait a minute, I thought we were all waiting for the return of Jesus. Like He ascended into heaven, and we're waiting for him to come back. That was only a few years ago. What about the people who have died? Are they in trouble? Are they in danger? Are we somehow separated from them? And what Paul is going to say is, nope, God's got them. You don't need to worry about them. And he gives them kind of a description of how it's going to be at the return of Jesus. So listen to these words of encouragement from Paul to the church in Thessalonica and the church in Livermore. So finally, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus, we ask you, we beg you, to remember what we have taught you. Live a life that is pleasing to God as you are already doing. Yes, we urge you to keep living and thriving in that life. For you know the instructions we gave you, instructions that came through the Lord Jesus. Now this is God's will for you. Set yourselves apart and live holy lives. Avoid polluting yourselves with sexual defilement. Learn how to take charge over your own body, maintaining purity and honor. Don't let the swells of lustful passion run your life as they do the outsiders who don't know God. Don't violate or take advantage of a fellow believer in such matters. As we told you before and warned you, the Lord will settle the score with anyone who does these things. Here's why. God does not call us to live impure, adulterous, scandalous lives, but to seek holiness and purity. If you ignore this message, then you're not only rejecting us, but you're rejecting God, the one who has given his Holy Spirit 
to live in you. Now, there's no need for us to send you instructions on caring for your faith family because God himself has already taught you how to love outside yourselves. And it's evident you learned that lesson well by the way you love all the people of Macedonia. Brothers and sisters, we urge you to love even more and make it your goal to lead a peaceful life, mind your own business, and keep your hands busy in your work as we have instructed you. That way, you will live peacefully with those on the outside and all your needs will be met without depending on others. Brothers and sisters, we want you to be fully informed about those who have fallen asleep in death so that you will not be overwhelmed with grief like those who live outside of the true hope. Here's what we believe. Since Jesus died and rose again, in the same way, God will bring with Jesus all who have died through him. For we can say all this to you confidently because it is the word of the Lord. We who are still alive and left behind when the Lord comes will not precede those who have fallen asleep in death. On that day, with a command that thunders into the world, with a voice of a chief heavenly messenger, and with a blast of God's trumpet, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. And all those who died in the anointed one, our liberating king, will rise from the dead first. And then we who are alive and left behind will be snatched up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. This is how we, the resurrected and the living, will be with him forever. So comfort one another with this hope and encourage one another with these words. Here we see Paul responding to the question that the Thessalonian church had about how to understand Jesus. They knew that he descended into heaven and said, go make disciples of all nations, like we have written on the wall over here, and that they were awaiting his return uh, and for him to establish his fully realized kingdom on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Remember Revelations chapters 21 and 22, the marriage of heaven and earth. But there were people who had died. What does this mean for them? And what we see here is that Paul gives them a faithful response. And we've been talking in this series about how to give a faithful response when critics or opponents of Christianity ask questions of us about whether or not our faith should be trusted. And like I said, the question that we're going to hear and respond to today is, how can you take the Bible literally? Some people, just, that's, a, that's a dead end for them. Can't trust the Bible. It's old. It's strange. It says things that we don't understand. I just can't hear it. I don't even know what to do it, do with it. This question is often, I've noticed, a bundle of questions that kind of all come together. And I'm going to try to respond to this bundle of questions this morning, and I'm going to do it somewhat, uh, this mic. Stand by. Okay. I'm going to come over here, and I'm going to take each of these podiums is going to represent a different question or criticism that someone uh, has for the Bible is kind of part of that bundle of questions. First question that you will sometimes hear as an objection to why we should li not listen to the Bible is, is it inconsistent to read some parts of the Bible literally and other parts of the Bible not? People have a lot of different ideas about what the Bible actually is, what it's for, and how we are supposed to take it. Even within the church, if you ask a bunch of Christians, what is the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? Some people might say, well, it's a rule book. It's an instruction manual. It's a moral code. Well, it's, it's just good 
teachings. It, it's got wisdom in it. It's, it's uh, histories and stories. And sometimes we're not even sure what to do with those stories. Somebody might be quick to remind you, well, it's, uh, Scripture tells us that Scripture is God-breathed. Okay, so it comes from God's authority. But what does that mean? Does that mean that God, like uh, with Moses and the Ten Commandments, like he, did he write it out on a stone tablet? Well, no, we have some of these writings that were written by people. Okay, well, were these people, was God whispering in their ear and telling them, like, write this comma and, and this question mark and say it this way in a particular form or fashion? You see, kind of the point is that there's a lot of different ways to take and understand the Bible. A lot of people are, have grown up thinking, okay, the Bible says it, we're going to do it. Everything the Bible says, because it is God-breathed, because it is God's word, means we'd better get it right. and We'd better obey it. So if Jesus tells us, if your right eye causes you to sin, you need to gouge it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Notice a lot of you have your right hands with you. So either we're not taking Jesus literally, or maybe that's not exactly what he meant. Part of the problem comes when we fail to recognize that the Bible was written by a lot of authors over a lot of a long period of time in a lot of different geographical regions. And a key to understanding how to receive the Bible is to acknowledge that there are a number of different genres represented in the Bible. Styles of writing. Um, we, I'm thinking about a course that we had here at Tri-Valley this last fall. We did a 12-week teaching course on Sunday mornings on New Testament interpretation, where we talked about this, and we listened to uh, seminary professors talk about this, and we discussed it, and we learned a lot of different things. And I'm thinking, how am I going to condense a 12-week course that itself only scratched the surface of how to understand and interpret the Bible how am I going to consolidate that down into just two or three minutes here this morning? I don't really know how. <laughs> but part of it, like I said, comes with acknowledging the fact that there are a lot of different styles of writing in the Bible. There are histories, but the Bible also contains poetry and proverbs and parables and wisdom sayings and prayers and songs and commands and law codes and prophecies, and, and what, what does that even mean? That's a, a whole class by itself. But if you understand that there are a lot of different kinds of writings, you might recognize then the way people communicated God's word. They did it using expressions and figures of speech. And some of those, like the example we gave with Jesus, maybe were not intended to be taken literally. Maybe it is good for you if you are so caught up in sin that if your right eye causes you to, to lust or to... to, to look after something in a greedy way, then maybe, yeah, you should cut your, your eye out. But maybe Jesus was trying to say something more important than just get used to not having the depth perception that you're used to. Think about the way we talk nowadays. We use figures of speech all the time. We recognize different genres of written communication. Like if I gave you a shopping list, you wouldn't have to read it very long before you looked at that and went, oh, that's a grocery list. It's a list of things someone needs to get at the store. It's not a news report. It's not the first sentence of a Harry Potter chapter. We recognize that there's different styles of writing. And that's true in Scripture as well. And like I said, we have to recognize that we speak in figures of speech sometimes. We say, oh, the thing that this person did, it broke my heart. Did it literally break your heart? Do we need to call a cardiologist? No, that's not the point that they're trying to make. 
Somebody might say, that guitar solo was so awesome that it melted my face. You ever heard that expression before? A face-melting guitar solo? Is it just me? Rick, Rick, you've heard of that before. Well, it didn't actually melt my face, but what we're saying something about how great it was. Or this sermon is so long that it's been going on for a million years. Is that literally true? No, but it can feel like a million years to you and sometimes to me as well. In the same way, ancient people spoke in figures of speech. They communicated written language in a lot of different styles. And it's important to try to understand as best we can what we're reading when we're reading it. Well, how do you do that? Is it, is it listed? Does it say in the, in the margin, this is a figure of speech? Don't take this literally. Not always. We have to do our best to recognize genres, different styles of communicating when we can, as best we can, and acknowledge that we're going to get it wrong and that we're going to make mistakes sometimes. Even in the Gospels, we see people listening to Jesus, and he's using a figure of speech, but they're taking him literally, and there's a misunderstanding that's pointed out. Like when Jesus says, uh, they're in Jerusalem, and he says, ah, you destroy this temple, and in three days, I will rebuild it. And the people who hear that go, this temple took 46 years to build, not to mention the first time that it was built. That's just the renovation process. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? How exactly are you going to do that, strong man? <laughs> and the Gospels tell us what Jesus wasn't talking about, the temple, although that was destroyed. He was talking about his body. It's going to go into the grave. And in three days, it was going to be raised. And people understood what that meant after the fact, but it didn't make sense at the time. Jesus is having a midnight conversation with a, a Pharisee who's interested in his teachings. And he tells him, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, that's a weird thing to do. Because if you're an adult, you can't enter the womb a second time and be born again. Actually, kind of a graphic image that I'm glad our kids aren't here <laughs> to hear. And Jesus says, nope, that's not what we're talking about here. He tells the woman at the well, I am the living water. If you knew who I was, you would ask for this living water and then you wouldn't be thirsty ever again. And she says, that sounds great. I don't like coming to this well and getting water in the hot part of the day when I can't be around other people because of my bad reputation. I want this living water. Give it to me so I'm, I'm not thirsty again. And Jesus says, oh, you're asking the right question, but you're misunderstanding. This isn't about water that we drink. This is about water for your soul, the water that I can give you. You see what I'm saying? Figures of speech need to be understood within their own context. We don't always get it right. There's, uh, I talked earlier about how we take communion. And the little cracker is the body of Christ. And the, the juice that we drink is the blood of Christ. There's a debate, there's a controversy that's existed in the church about whether or not that is to be taken literally. Roman Catholics believe that it is what we're experiencing when we take communion is a miracle. It's something called transubstantiation, where the, the cracker, the, the wafer, and the wine actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus. Whoa, how? It's a mystery. But it's a sacrament, and it's of God. And then there are people on the Protestant side that says, no, it's merely symbolic, and, and that's not it. And can't we just agree to disagree? Maybe, but a lot of blood has been shed over that disagreement throughout history. It's just illustrating the fact that we don't always get it right. But we do our best to be faithful in understanding what is being communicated there. One more quick example, and then I'll jump to the second question. 
In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul says, ah, here's what's going to happen. Like, those who are dead will be raised, and we're we're all going to go and meet Jesus in the air. A lot of people have interpreted this passage to mean that, oh, because that's where heaven is, right? Because, we, you know, like we all know your, 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 your spirit leaves your body and it floats up to the clouds and that's where we live in heaven and it's all very see-through and you can't actually touch it. But you know, that doesn't go with the marriage of heaven and earth that we talked about and what we hear in Revelation 21 and 22. If you understand, what the video told us a little bit earlier is that the image that Paul is using here, he says, when the king returns, we are going to go out to meet him. There was a common custom during this time that if a king led his army out in battle and then the messengers sent back word of the victory, then the people of the city, they were excited. It's like, you know, if the, if the Golden State Warriors come home on the plane, they just won the whole thing. Like, we're going to meet him at the airport and we're going to go and we're going to celebrate. Well, you don't go outside of the city walls and stay there. You don't greet the king and say, great, now let's live in the desert, like halfway between the battlefield and here. No, you meet the king, but you join the procession, and you come back to the city. That seems to be the image that Paul is giving. We're going to meet Jesus when he returns, but we're not going to like hang out somewhere in in midair, and that's where we spend our eternity. No, no, no. He's coming back to restore his kingdom. It's a bodily kingdom. It's an earthly kingdom, and we get to participate in that. You might hear that and go, I don't think that's what he's talking about. I like the floating in heaven idea better. Hopefully we don't spill blood over this disagreement, but trying to understand it as best we can is kind of what I'm going for here. But all of this is to say, if this is the criticism, like how can you take some things literally and some things not literally? The answer is we do it all the time. That's how people talk. It's not unusual for some things to be understood literally and others not. So while it's not always clear how we weight the words of the Bible. It's not inconsistent to take some things literally and other things not. Now here's the problem, as if there were only one problem with what I'm saying right now. Now that we have acknowledged that some things are taken literally and some things are not to be taken literally, uh, doesn't that give us free reign to say the miracles, the supernatural stuff that doesn't really jive with my uh, sense of modern science, what can be reproduced in a lab setting. Like, I've always had a problem with that. Since some things are literal and some things are not, does that mean we can take all the miracles and say, that was just a figure of speech? That was just an expression. We don't need to take the miraculous things Jesus or anybody else, things that other people did throughout the Bible, we don't need to take that literally, right? Is that what that means? Well, no, I'm sorry. I don't think that that's what that means. But some people have. I've given this example before. Maybe it's a good 4th of July weekend example. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, who was what, what number president? Who knows? Trivia. That's right. Thomas Jefferson, the third president, uh, author, signer, the declaration, a lot of other things on his resume, was uncomfortable with the supernatural identity of Jesus. He didn't think Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't like the resurrection. He didn't like turning water into wine. He didn't like the healings, the miraculous things. He's like, I don't know. I just like the life and the morals of Jesus. So Thomas Jefferson took a copy of uh, scriptures, and he took scissors, and he took a razor, and he cut out a lot of stuff. And he made for his own private devotions uh, a book that is now, they found it, they published it, it's called the Jefferson Bible. People say, all right, you can have all the good teachings of Jesus, you know, love your enemies, Do unto others what you would have them do to you, but you don't have to agree that the miracles should be taken 
literally. Can we do that? Again, I don't think that's faithful to Scripture. It can be tempting for us modern folks to want to join Thomas Jefferson in doing that. There's a narrative that you'll hear that says religion and science are incompatible. You're either an educated, scientific, rational thinker, or you're a childish, mystical believer in the Bible's unlikely fantasies. You'll hear people say that or allude to that philosophy. Spoiler alert, next week we get to spend our whole teaching time addressing that question. And uh, it's not spoiling much, but it's an exciting outcome. We find that religion and science have gone together throughout history. Science has a lot, it owes a lot to thinkers and scientists uh, who were believers and did what they did because of their faith. But folks are still tempted to say, isn't it possible that the reports of Jesus' resurrection were just like a metaphorical way of saying, you know, his teachings lived on. You know, we remembered his words, and so they were alive in our hearts. Well, no, the language is very clear. The Gospels give a lot of specific details uh, about the fact that Jesus' resurrection was a bodily resurrection. It's a supernatural, one-time, not reproducible thing. So we believe it or we don't. What about the healings, the miracles of Jesus? Are those just kind of like a storytelling uh, method or technique? Remember, hey, remember, genre, right, Jacob? Don't they tell, tell stories in figurative ways? Isn't that what they're referring to with like Jesus restoring someone's hand or opening the eyes of the blind? Well, Jesus sometimes did take the miracles he performed and apply a spiritual meaning to them, like when he opened up the blind man's eyes, that was partly to illustrate that the Pharisees were the ones who were really blind and the unclean, those who were coming to Jesus, were the ones who could actually see. So there was a lesson involved there. But that doesn't mean that he didn't perform the miracle either. Scriptures are pretty clear that like, no, Jesus was doing things that could not be explained because of the power of God alive within him. We need to acknowledge that this is a major obstacle for people who won't believe in the Bible, won't believe in the testimonies, and won't become Christians today. It's not something that happened. Dead people simply don't come back to life. It requires some faith and some trust in the God who created the universe and has powerful control over his universe. So, the answer is no, sorry, but uh, understandable why people can't go down that road. Third problem in the bundle of how do we take the Bible has to do with the contradictions in the Bible. What about all of the ways that the Bible contradicts itself? It says this over here, and it says that over there. Which is it? Is it this, or is it that? There are lots of examples of this that people will raise as kind of like defeaters and say, end of conversation. The Bible contradicts itself. It can't be trusted. Let's look at some of these. In Luke 24, Jesus ascends right up into heaven after the first resurrection Appearance, it's pretty quick. It happens right away. But Acts chapter 1 tells us that Jesus' resurrection appearances lasted for 40 days. Well, is it this? Did it happen right away? Or is it that? Was it 40 days later? There seem to be conflicting testimonies. Doesn't sound like this Bible's got its story together. How can we trust it? Well, there's explanations for things like that. You'll see in the Gospels the way things were written. They often telescope events together. Like if you read Mark, it's like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. Like, well, those things were weeks apart, but they're trying to create this sense of, of hurry and urgency. It didn't immediately happen. Maybe there was a gap between what was reported and then the 40 days. There, there's ways that these things can be reconciled to each other. 
Here's a modern day example. Let's say you're talking to a coworker and she says, I'm so frustrated with my boss. One minute he says this, and then the next minute he says that. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Well, let's say there were like two or three weeks between the first thing the boss said and then the second thing the boss said. But the way the person is telling the story, they're trying to communicate frustration. They're trying to say, ah, it seems like one minute and then the next minute, but it's not a literal chronological event. That's just to point out that we sometimes talk like this as well. Um, what about Genesis chapter 1 and 2? It says God created with his word, and then in chapter 2, God's creating humans with his hand. Well, was it this or was it this? There's a lot of accounts of things that happened, and they seem to be in conflict with each other. Our modern ears go, you know, it might have been this, it might have been this. Let's look at all the different facts, and let's choose one. One of them's right, and one of them's wrong. It's either this or it's that. But ancient people didn't think like that. They said, oh, here's an account of, of God creating the world, and then here's an account with God creating the world. Let's keep them both. Because they're trying to say something about God. Not the, the how, the specifics. They're not trying to walk you through uh, specific things like creating a timeline or a blueprint or a chronology. The, the accounts that we have of how God created the world or, or that God created the world are poetic. They're trying to glorify God and say something about the care that God made. It's not, they're not trying to teach it to you as like in a manual. And if we understand that, we could say, okay, maybe that, the questions that we're asking of Scripture, is it this or is it that, are questions that the ancients never even considered because they had a different set of goals. Uh, there's more on my paper here, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skip down and just kind of end this here section with an example. If you've ever read Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities, it starts out with a very famous line that goes, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Well, hold on here, Dickens. Which was it? Was it the best of times or was it the worst of times? Because you're starting on a pretty bad foot. I don't know if I can trust the rest of this novel. Uh, I think I'm going to stop reading right there. Did anybody stop reading after the first line in Tale of Two Cities? No, because you understood, okay. This seems like a contradiction, but I'm intrigued. Maybe the author is making this contrast to try to tell us something about the times. Maybe I'll read on and I'll learn and I'll uncover what that thing is that's trying to be communicated. In the same way, I encourage people who just want to give up on Scripture because of seeming contradictions, don't stop there. Ask the questions about what is trying to be communicated. Lean in and go deeper. Last question you will sometimes hear people ask when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to the Gospels, because this Christian faith rests pretty strongly on whether or not Jesus really was raised from the dead. What we know about Jesus and his resurrection from the Gospels, are these accounts trustworthy? Can we believe them? The basic argument or criticism goes something like this. The myth and the legend about Jesus Christ got exaggerated so much by Christians in the time when the event, the, the, the crucifixion happened, and when the Gospels were written down, there's like, you know, anywhere between like 30 and 70 year gap, people will say during that time, Jesus went from just a wise rabbi who was crucified and stayed dead to this Messiah figure, this, this fantastical, supernatural, superhero of a character. And all of that was concocted by the oral traditions between the times. They said Jesus wasn't actually the Son of God. He never claimed to be the Son of God. All of that was added to the gospel accounts 
later. He wasn't actually raised from the dead. That's a major criticism that people will bring to the table. Uh, and there's a, long, there's a long list of ways that this could be refuted. I wanted to give you a short list and then a book recommendation of where place you can go to like just dig in and, and do your own research on this. But a quick list of ways that that theory doesn't really hold water goes like this. There actually is a lot of manuscript evidence. We have the four Gospels, but we also have accounts of the life and the, uh, the death, and then also the reported resurrection of Jesus from non-Christian sources. People who were opponents of Christianity during the time said, like, no, this is, this is pretty historical that this thing happened. And believers believe that he was the Son of God, and people aren't so sure about that. But most historians will not refute the life or the death or the reported resurrection of Jesus. We know there's more manuscript evidence about the life of Jesus than about the Roman emperor, Tiberius, who existed during the life of Jesus. Another example is that uh, the way that the Gospels were written, they were written in a way that made them verifiable. So uh, Mark was probably written within the lifetime of Jesus. And so there's details given about eyewitness accounts. If you read what was written about Jesus by Mark, he names places and people, and you can actually go to those places and ask for those people and say like, hey, you were an eyewitness. Mark said so. Can, can you verify that? And these people go, yeah. That's sometimes why you get more detail than you thought you needed. Like, why, why do I care whose son this person was? Because that's kind of like giving an example of where you can go to do your fact checking. Like when Jesus was carrying the cross and he was so weak, he couldn't carry the cross anymore. It says they, they recruited a man, they drafted this guy named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why do we need to know where he's from and whose father he was? For that reason. So you could go and say, all right, did, you, did this really happen? Yeah, I was there. I saw this. Another example, Evie, I think I have a list of this uh, on the next slide. You guys can follow along with this. Uh, if they were making this stuff up, they probably wouldn't have said that women were eyewitnesses at the tomb, the empty tomb of Jesus in all four Gospels. The first people to find that Jesus was not in the tomb where he was supposed to be were women. Women did not have credibility in culture at this time. If you were making this up and you wanted people to go along with it, you would not have said women were the, the people who came up with this testimony. I'm sorry that that's how it was culturally. That's, that's kind of gross. But women were just not trusted. If a woman said, this happened, they'd be like, we'll see. Let's go find a man and see what he says. That's how it was. So the, just the fact that women were the eyewitnesses lends to the fact that this is probably because they were. It, it, it's true. Another example of that is the way that the disciples' failure and cowardice was depicted in the Gospels. If you were making this up, you would not make yourself as, look as bad as Peter and Judas and all these guys. But... The fact that it's, it's pretty rough and pretty raw about the way that they didn't follow through with Jesus is evidence that these things really happened the way that they said they did. There's other uh, theories like Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he fainted for being on the cross and then, you know, he put him in the tomb, but he was refreshed by the cool air that blew in and then he walked, walked away and all this. Well, that doesn't work either. Romans, Jesus was not the only person who was crucified. They crucified people all the time. They were experts in execution. They knew how to make sure somebody was dead. Well, maybe it wasn't a bodily resurrection. Maybe it was like they thought they saw a spirit, and it was like, you know, when the loved one dies and you think you see them coming back to visit you. No, like the way that the Gospels and the resurrection accounts were written show that this was a bodily resurrection. Jesus eating fish and like spending time with people, 
Thomas touching his hands and his side. Like, they make that pretty clear. On and on and on and on, on the argument goes. But I'm saying this just to kind of show you that there are credible and responsible answers to some of the critics, criticisms people have about whether or not the Gospels in our Bibles should be taken as historical witness. The book recommendation I want to give you, and I bought some copies of this. There's one in the foyer. There's, there's two other copies in our church library. Uh, it's a book called Can We Trust the Gospels by Peter Williams. And I recommend this because he does a really good job of going through these arguments. And it's a really short book. And there's a lot of concise arguments. He doesn't like, it's not real thick with all these footnotes and things. He just was like this and this and this and this and this. It makes a very compelling case for why it's reasonable to believe that the way the Gospels were written were written because they reflect what actually happened, including the resurrection of Jesus, the Son of God. Now I want to go back to the squirt gun, where we started. Justin, have you squirted anybody? Rick, have you squirted anybody? I'm relatively dry, so I appreciate you guys not training those things at me. I know it can be very tempting to do that. The reason I gave you guys squirt guns is because I realized that when we're responding to some of these questions, and when we realize, hey, we can equip ourselves with some good answers to these questions, it can become very tempting to treat it like a loaded squirt gun. You've you got a full tank, and you're ready to just unload on somebody. Ah, I heard something that's really, really compelling, and this person challenged me on my faith, and they've always been an atheist, and they said, oh, what about the trustworthiness? What about the miracles? Well, I've got great answers for them, and here I come, guns blazing, ready to squirt you in the face with this information. And just like Justin and Rick restrained themselves and didn't come out guns blazing, and I appreciate you guys not squirting me or the people around you, that's what I think we need to do as Christians with this information. And I've said this before. We can, we can read Peter Williams' book. We can learn answers to these questions, and it can embolden us to go out and share this with people. And don't get me wrong, I do think that we should share this information with people. But maybe squirting them in the face with it is not the best way to give them the living water that Jesus is offering. There's a woman named Lisa Fields, and she is the founder and director of an organization called the Jude 3 Project. And she works a lot with disenfranchised uh, you know, former Christians, people who grew up in church and said, you know what, I just don't want to have anything to do with it anymore. She, she counsels them. She's really into this kind of stuff, like coming up with faithful answers to questions like, like the ones that people are asking. But what she says is that in her experience, she's found that people who are asking these questions are asking these questions as kind of like a secondary layer. Sometimes they'll, they'll challenge the, the Bible or the Gospels with these questions that we're responding to, but that's not the real issue. She says they'll, they'll, they'll mention that the, the Bible's not trustworthy, and that's why I gave up on it. But the truth is, they've had an experience in church where someone's behavior hurt them, an expectation they had wasn't met, or Christians were just not being Christ-like to them, and so they walked away from the church. She says the two things she sees most often are the two H's, hurt because of a church or hypocrisy within a church. People not walking the walk, even though they're pointing fingers and telling everybody else, they need to live like Jesus when they're not doing it themselves. She says that's often the real deep down issue. And you can debate someone all day long until you're blue in the face and go, ah, I got all the answers, and oh, what are you going to say now? That's not even the real issue that's there. There's something that's deeper. 
And what Lisa Fields says is you need to recognize that. We need to hear people out. We need to know where they're coming from and be patient and hear their stories. But again, not that we shouldn't communicate this information. I think it's important. John chapter 1 tells us that Jesus came full of grace and truth. Truth and grace, grace and truth. The truth is what is in those square guns. The truth is like knowing that there are faithful, reasonable answers to questions that people have or criticisms against the faith. And those answers need to be spoken. But a lot of times, we're all truth and not grace. Other times, we're, we're all grace. And we'll sit and listen to somebody's hurt and their concern all day long. And maybe there's an opportunity for us to present some truth, but we don't do it. I think maybe that's a challenge for us Christians today. Is if we're truth-heavy, we need to do more grace. If we're more grace-heavy, we don't need to not forget the truth. We believe in this living water that Jesus is offering. Maybe the best way to get it to people is to offer it at a table, in conversation, in community with someone, not treating it like a weapon, but just making it accessible, getting it on the table and offering it, not forgetting to do what Jesus commanded us to do all along. Love God, love others. Love God, love others. Love your neighbor, love your enemy, love the stranger. I mean, there's a common theme here. And it starts with an L. And it's love. And we can't forget that. Can't forget grace, but can't forget truth and doing it all in love. That's pretty much all I've got to say today. In just a moment, I'm going to have Brett come up here and uh, lead us in some prayers and let us know how we can pray for one another throughout this week. But before he does that, I want to invite you, if you're able, go ahead and stand. I'm going to close out with a blessing for, for us, for you as the church. And once again, like last week, this comes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the prayer that Paul prays for the Thessalonian church, and I pray that it's something that we take to heart as well. May the Lord flood you with an unending, undying love for each other and for all humanity, like our love for you, so that your hearts will be reinforced with his strength, held blameless and holy before God our Father, when the Lord Jesus appears along with all his holy ones. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat again. I've only received uh, one new prayer request for today, and this comes from Janae Grant and also Michaela, who texted me this morning. <clears throat> it says, please pray for my grandma, Connie Orman. She fell this morning and is currently in the hospital. And she also asks that we uh, keep the family in prayer as well, well as those who will be caring for her grandmother. Uh, also remember some of our ongoing uh, prayer requests. It's good to see Mary here today. Uh, she had a pacemaker put in recently, so I assume that's all going well. And uh, Julia Ryle, uh, she's been here a couple weeks, casts on her hand, but uh, continue to pray that her uh, wrist heal, and that she'll uh, soon be back to doing everything that she did before. Well, it doesn't seem to be slowing her down too much. Okay. Uh, also, uh, the McRandall family, as you recall, her uh, brother passed away a couple weeks ago, and they traveled to Tennessee. They're traveling back now, so keep, keep them in prayer as they're on the road coming home. Uh, continue to remember Sylvia Skinner. She goes through her cancer treatments, and they also have uh, some family travel uh, in between those treatments. 
and uh, uh, Phil Weiss's mom also uh, continuing to recover. Last I heard, she was uh, still uh, not able to go home, and uh, when she does go home, there's a lot uh, to take care of. Both uh, Phil's mom and dad need help in the home, so continue to uh, to keep them in prayer. Uh, that's all I have for now, so let's go to God in prayer, and then after the prayer, you're dismissed. Our Heavenly Father, we're, uh, we're grateful that we can come into your presence uh, to worship you, to praise you, uh, to glorify your name. Uh, but Father, we're also grateful that we know we're, we live in your presence every day and that you, you care for us uh, more than you care for the, uh, the flowers and the, and the creatures that you created. Uh, Father, we pray for your, your blessing on, on those I've mentioned, uh, that we can have uh, the confidence that they're, they're in your constant care. Father, we I know you are a God who heals, a God who loves, and a God who cares. Father, we thank you for Christ, and we thank you for his sacrifice. And Father, we thank you for the Bible, and give us a, an assurance of the things that you have said, an understanding of them, and help us to apply those to our life. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. <laughs>